War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Alama and Louise Maud Book 8 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by J. C. Guan War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy Book 8 Chapter 1 after Prince Andrew's engagement to Natasha, Pierre, without any apparent cause, suddenly felt it impossible to go on living as before. Firmly convinced, as he was, of the truths revealed to him by his benefactor, and happy as he had been in perfecting his inner man, to which he had devoted himself in such ardour, all the zest of such a life vanished after the engagement of Andrew and Natasha, and the death of Joseph Alexeyevich, the news of which reached him almost at the same time. Only the skeleton of life remained. His house, a brilliant wife who enjoyed the favours of a very important personage, acquaintance with all Petersburg, and his court service with its dull formalities and this life suddenly seemed to Pierre unexpectedly loathsome. He ceased keeping a diary, avoided the company of the brothers, began going to the club again, drank a great deal, and came once more in touch with the bachelor sets, leading such a life that the Countess Helene thought it necessary to speak severely to him about it. Pierre felt that she was right, and, to avoid compromising her, went away to Moscow. In Moscow, as soon as he entered his huge house, in which he the faded and fading princesses still lived, with its enormous retinue, as soon as, driving through the town, he saw the Iberian shrine with innumerable tapers burning before the golden covers of the icons, the Kremlin Square, with its snow undisturbed by vehicles, the sleigh-drivers, and the hovels of the Sivtsev Vrazrok, those old Moscovites who desired nothing, hurried nowhere, and were ending their days leisurely. When he saw those old Moscow ladies, the Moscow balls, and the English club, he felt himself at home in a quiet haven. In Moscow he felt at peace, at home, warm and dirty, as in an old dressing-gown. Moscow's society, from the old women down to the children, received Pierre like a long-expected guest, whose place was always ready awaiting him. For Moscow society, Pierre was the nicest, kindest, most intellectual, merriest, and most magnanimous of cranks, a heedless, genial nobleman of the old Russian type. His purse was always empty, because it was open to every one. Benefit performances, poor pictures, statues, benevolent societies, gypsy choirs, schools, subscription dinners, sprees, Freemasons, churches, and books. No one and nothing met with a refusal from him, and had it not been for two friends who had borrowed large sums from him, and taking him under their protection, he would have given everything away. 
There was never a dinner or soiree, at the club without him. As soon as he sank into his place on the sofa, after two bottles of margot, he was surrounded and talking, disputing, and joking began. When there were quarrels, his kindly smile and well-trimmed jest reconciled the antagonist. The Masonic dinners were dull and dreary when he was not there. When after a bachelor's supper, he rose with his amiable and kindly smile, yielding to the entreaties of the festive company to drive off somewhere with them, shouts of delight and triumph arose among the young men. At balls, he danced if a partner was needed. Young ladies, married and unmarried, liked him, because without making love to any of them, he was equally amiable to all, especially after supper. Il est charmant, il n'a pas de sexe, they said of him. He is charming, he has no sex. Pierre was one of those retired gentlemen in waiting, of whom there were hundreds good-humouredly ending their days in Moscow. How horrified he would have been seven years before, when he first arrived from abroad, had he been told that there was no need for him to seek or plan anything, that his rut had long been shaped, eternally predetermined, and that wriggle as he might, he would be what all in his position were. He could not have believed it, had he not at one time longed with all his heart to establish a republic in Russia, then himself to be a Napoleon, then to be a philosopher, and then a strategist and the conqueror of Napoleon. Had he not seen the possibility of, and passionately desired, the regeneration of the sinful human race, and his own progress to the highest degree of perfection? Had he not established schools and hospitals and liberated his serfs? But instead of all that, here he was, the wealthy husband of an unfaithful wife, a retired gentleman-in-waiting fond of eating and drinking, and as he unbuttoned his waistcoat, of abusing the government a bit, a member of the Moscow English Club, and a universal favorite in Moscow society. For a long time he could not reconcile himself to the idea that he was one of those same retired Moscow gentlemen-in-waiting he had so despised seven years before. Sometimes he consoled himself with the thought that he was only living this life temporarily, but then he was shocked by the thought of how many, like himself, had entered that life and that club temporarily, with all their teeth and hair, and only left it when not a single tooth or hair remained. In moments of pride, when he thought of his position, it seemed to him that he was quite different and distinct from those other retired gentlemen-in-waiting he had formerly despised. They were empty, stupid, contented fellows, satisfied with their position, while I am still discontented and want to do something for mankind. But perhaps all these comrades of mine struggled just like me, and sought something new, a path in life of their own, and like me, 
were brought by force of circumstances, society, and race, by that elemental force against which man is powerless, to the condition I am in, said he to himself in moments of humility, and after living some time in Moscow, he no longer despised, but began to grow fond of, to respect, and to pity his comrades in destiny, as he pitied himself. Pierre no longer suffered moments of despair, hypochondria, and disgust with life, but the malady that had formerly found expression in such acute attacks was driven inwards and never left him for a moment. What for? Why? What is going on in the world? He would ask himself in perplexity several times a day, involuntarily beginning to reflect anew on the meaning of the phenomena of life, but knowing by experience that there were no answers to these questions he made haste to turn away from them, and took up a book, or hurried off to the club, or to Apollon Nikolaevich's, to exchange the gossip of the town. Helene, who has never cared for anything but her own body, and is one of the stupidest women in the world, thought Pierre, is regarded by people as the acme of intelligence and refinement, and they pay homage to her. Napoleon Bonaparte was despised by all as long as he was great, but now that he has become a wretched comedian, the Emperor Francis wants to offer him his daughter in an illegal marriage. The Spaniards, through the Catholic clergy, offer praise to God for their victory over the French on the 14th of June, and the French, also through the Catholic clergy, offer praise because on that same 14th of June they defeated the Spaniards. My brother Masons swear by the blood that they are ready to sacrifice everything for their neighbor, but they do not give a rubble each to the collections for the poor, and they intrigue the Astrea Lodge against the mana-seekers, and fuss about an authentic Scotch carpet and a charter that nobody needs, and the meaning of which the very man who wrote it does not understand. We all profess the Christian law of forgiveness, of injuries, and love of our neighbors, the law in honor of which we have built in Moscow forty times forty churches. But yesterday a deserter was knouted to death in a minister of that same law of love and forgiveness. A priest gave the soldier a cross to kiss before his execution. So thought Pierre, and the whole of this general deception which everyone accepts, accustomed as he was to it, astonished him each time, as if it were something new. I understand the deception and confusion, he thought. But how am I to tell them all that I see? I have tried, and have always found that they too, in the depths of their souls, understand it as I do, and only try not to see it. So it appears that it must be so. But I, what is to become of me? thought he. He had the unfortunate capacity many men, especially Russians, have of seeing and believing in the possibility of goodness and truth, 
but of seeing the evil and falsehood of life too clearly to be able to take a serious part in it. Every sphere of work was connected, in his eyes, with evil and deception. Whatever he tried to be, whatever he engaged in, the evil and falsehood of it repulsed him and blocked every path of activity. Yet he had to live and to find occupation. It was too dreadful to be under the burden of these insoluble problems. So he abandoned himself to any distraction in order to forget them. He frequented every kind of society, drank much, bought pictures, engaged in building, and above all, read. He read, and read everything that came to hand. On coming home, while his valets were still taking off his things, he picked up a book and began to read. From reading, he passed to sleeping, from sleeping to gossip in drawing-rooms of the club, from gossip to carousals and women, from carousals back to gossip, reading and wine. Drinking became more and more a physical and also a moral necessity, though the doctors warned him that with his corpulence wine was dangerous for him. He drank a great deal. He was only quite at ease when, having poured several glasses of wine mechanically into his large mouth, he felt a pleasant warmth in his body, an amiability toward all his fellows, and a readiness to respond superficially to every idea without probing it deeply. Only after emptying a bottle or two did he feel dimly that the terribly tangled skein of life which previously had terrified him, was not as dreadful as he had thought. He was always conscious of some aspect of that skein. As with a buzzing in his head, after dinner or supper, he chatted or listened to conversation, or read. But under the influence of wine, he said to himself, It doesn't matter. I'll get it unraveled. I have a solution ready, but... Have no time now. I'll think it all out later on. But the later on never came. In the morning, on an empty stomach, all the old questions appeared as insoluble and terrible as ever, and Pierre hastily picked up a book, and if anyone came to see him, he was glad. Sometimes he remembered how he had heard that soldiers in war, when entrenched under the enemy's fire, if they have nothing to do, try hard to find some occupation the more easily to bear the danger. To Pierre, all men seemed like those soldiers, seeking refuge from life, some in ambition, some in cards, some in framing laws, some in women, some in toys, some in horses, some in politics, some in sport, some in wine, and some in governmental affairs. Nothing is trivial, and nothing is important. It's all the same, only to save oneself from it as best as one can, thought Pierre, only not to see it, that dreadful it. End of chapter 1